Welcome to Engineer to be Excellent, a podcast for engineers and managers of small to medium-sized businesses who are ready to scale their PCB testing through automation. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Stephen Hawes, founder of Opilo, to talk about how he designs for test. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For people who are meeting you for the first time, could you share a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, I uh, I run Opulo, which is an open source hardware company. We make pick and place machines. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar, but just to be thorough, it's a machine that automatically assembles electronic components onto circuit boards. So it has a little suction tip and the CNC head goes over, picks up the part, holds it over a camera and does machine vision to align it properly and places it uh, very precisely onto a circuit board. It started from uh, a YouTube channel that I started a few years ago. Uh, and then gained a lot of interest, uh, an open source project, a, a few hundred people that built it a few years ago. And then now we sell machines and feeders and all kinds of stuff. And we're a full-fledged business doing it. So that's a, a little bit about what I do. Well, that's fantastic. That sounds like, it sounds like quite the, I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like in a, probably the, the energy that goes into it, not the energy, but the, um, the, the excitement that goes into start, starting from nothing and creating what you've created and it, it sounds pretty remarkable it's uh the idea of a small scale um kind of a pick and place manufacturing is seems like that would appeal to a lot of people yeah yeah it's it, especially because we really started uh when all the component shortages were in full swing when we were swinging like uh, gearing up for production for our first batch of machines so not being reliant on a pcb fab overseas or you know even just anywhere that wasn't our facility was a godsend because we could order parts wherever we could get them, get them in. And we are our own factory. We ran our own boards. We weren't reliant on a CM. It was great. It saved us. Like we, we wouldn't have been able to do it if we didn't have that kind of flexibility. Uh, so it was, it was great. It really worked out well. Um, and it's constantly humbling of like, wow, I don't know anything about how to do X, Y, Z time to learn or time to ask someone that knows better than I do. So it's, it's a it's a great exercise in remembering that I always have a lot more to learn because there's always something new and weird. <laughs> oh, that is so true. That's so yeah. true. It's, it's, it goes along with the I guess that saying about the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. Yes. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you reach, reach that point where you go, oh my god, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> yeah, and then you don't really. I mean, you when you start to dip your toes into all those other little facets of how things work, it's like, oh, I, I, there's just so much more to this that I don't know. You know, I think there's there's a great visual about uh, getting your PhD where it kind of shows a a circle growing uh, as you go through your education. But then when you get into like your bachelor's and your master's, the circle starts to get kind of a point to it. Uh, kind of uh, representing like all the different uh, rotations of the circle or different aspects of understanding of like math and language. And your PhD is a really tiny little spike sticking out of that circle. It's just this tiny little, you're focusing on one very tiny little breadth of something. Uh, yeah. And you're only making a little progress in it. And that's a PhD. Uh, it's such a great visual. There's so much, one person cannot encapsulate all of that. You know, there's just so much to absorb. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. kind of, I think that's part of the excitement of the whole um of the whole process is, is you, you get to learn more. And whereas yeah. if you weren't exposed to it in the first place, you probably wouldn't even know what questions to ask. But the more you dip your toe into it, you're like, oh my God, this is way bigger than I thought it was going to be. And it's, <laughs> and it's... <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's great. It's, it's wonderful exposure to like all the complexities that come along with trying to ship 
a physical object that works and, and does useful work for people. Like there's so much that goes into that. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I just recently came across, I guess you have a podcast as well. Um, and I was listening to your first couple episodes. And I think the last episode, episode the last episode was about, oh, what was it? Um, the benefits of open source. Well, it actually wasn't, I wasn't thinking about the benefits as much as, um, so like um, PCB design, I imagine is only one aspect of your business. Um, and that probably goes along with not, not even mentioning like the, the marketing, the, the financial side, but it almost seems like um, as you get into it, the designing part of it is becoming a smaller and smaller part of it as you have to realize the business side of it. But um, the PCB design is also kind of at the heart of it as well. True. Yeah. Yeah. We do. We design all our own boards that go into the machine. And that comes with the huge asterisk of we have a community of like almost 4,000 people in our Discord. And a lot of them contribute feedback to the design of the board. So um, my line is I'm a pretty good engineer at all three main disciplines, mechanical, electrical, uh, computer science, but I'm not great at any of them. And that's where the community comes in and goes, Steven, you dummy, you, you did this wrong. So it is technically only me. But like we have so many devs that do so only only me at the company, I should say. There's so many community members that contribute. Um, but yeah, the, the PCBs are the beating heart of what we do. We make a machine that assembles them. Um, we make all our own boards here in-house on our own machine. The room right across from me is a uh, an SMT line. So we 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 use them all here. But yeah, we I still will make a pass on all boards for test. What are the things we actually have to do at the factory? Because you know the 30 feet away from my desk is where we test all the boards. So I'm very connected to like, what's the process of QC? Uh, after we get a community revision, I'll take a pass through it for like, what test jigs do we have? How do I make sure it still fits within that? Um, so yeah, we we are definitely still doing a lot of that in-house. Mm, I see. So mm. when you do testing, um, is it, uh, do you do uh, manual testing primarily or and then you get to the point where it becomes better to automate the testing how, do, how does your testing kind of flow work that's it it we really focus on what is the most efficient for throughput because at the end of the day we are a production facility and we're trying to get the most boards that are fully tested and work perfectly out the door as we possibly can uh, that's our our optimization metric right so uh we kind of break our testing down into two broad categories which is kind of a pulls from software testing, which is unit testing and then functional testing. So the way we think about like unit testing is uh, a lot of pogo pin jigs for checking like, is this pin on the microcontroller correctly soldered to this port on the output uh, of what it's supposed to interface with? Like very direct, like I'm literally checking that this solder uh, connection is made properly. And that that's, we do that if we feel like it is necessary um, because it saves us with functional testing. Uh, and functional testing is, does it do the thing, right? Like, does it do what it's supposed to do? So for our motherboard, mm -hmm. we have a pogo pin jig. We put it in there. It tests, you know, 50 some odd pins. There's 50 some odd tests in there. Um, all automatic. You put it in, flip a switch, hit a button. It runs the test. It actually prints a receipt out uh, that tells you all the tests that it ran and which ones failed, which pin uh, it was disconnected. And that saves us so that when, when we actually mount it to a machine and we do the functional testing, it's probably going to pass. And we tried to skip this. We tried to just take the board out, give it a glance, and then pop it into a machine. And we would find all kinds of problems. And it would take us forever to like remove the board from the machine. Now we have to go and figure out what was wrong with it. Like It saves us so much more time 
to test it, unit test that board before we do the functional test of putting it into a machine and like do all the actuators work. Uh, Cause we have like lights, pumps, valves, motors, like there's all kinds of stuff that are, that board has to control. Um, so we, we kind of break it down into that, those two subsections of like unit testing with pogo pins, literally checking those connections and functional testing. Does it turn on the pump? Does the sensor read the right value? You know, that more of that kind of thing. So, um, what kind of um, automated testing is do you guys have? Um, like, what kind of like language do you use? What kind of um, what, what goes into making it like an automated test? Right. So we have right now the real only automated PCB test we have is the Pogo Pin Jig for um, uh, the motherboard of the machine, and inside there is a uh, Raspberry Pi with a Python script uh, that has a lot of subprocesses that do things like. Uh, so let's see, as soon as we put the board in, uh, the Python script, uh, sees a button press, uh, on a GPIO pin on the Raspberry Pi, and that initiates the test. Um, we actually also have a barcode scanner. So we scan a barcode on the bottom of the motherboard. It reads in the, um, the serial number of the motherboard. So we log that, see the button press. It starts running the test. First thing it does is we use a, a Blackmagic probe, which is a fantastic programmer debugger for SWD and JTAG. It's a wonderful little board. We use them all, all the time. Um, so we flash a, a test firmware that I've written that actually goes onto the board. Um, and it will do things like flip pins, respond to pins being flipped and stuff. Uh, so we, we flash the test firmware on there. Then there's a controller host board inside the test jig. And it runs its own firmware that will check and see, hey, are all these pins connected? Is the firmware that we loaded onto the DUT, the device under test, um, is it doing what we expect it to? It then sends a report over serial back to the Python uh, script uh, running on the Raspberry Pi. And then the Python script then prints the receipt out to uh, this, the receipt printer and then logs uh, the test result to a database. So th this was my very first pass at doing this. And I did this a couple of years ago. I think it's pretty convoluted. Oh yeah, and then it flashes Marlin, which is the firmware that um, we use to run the machine onto the motherboard at the end of it. So we put its final firmware on it as well in the jig. and. It works great. It's very, there's a lot of steps. There's like three pieces of software that need to be involved. There's the Python script, there's the host script, and then there's the DUT script or DUT mm -hmm. firmware. So there's a lot going on in it. Um, it works, but it's kind of a dance. Um, so I, I, what I'd really love to do is I'm actually working on a replacement testing system for every board that we make here. And it will all be uh, using a really cool FTDI chip Oh man, I forget what it's called, but it effectively has like, you, you have one USB in and you get like four serial ports out. And oh, I think I know that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a dream chip. Uh, one of our devs uh, turned me onto it because he uses it all the time. And if you need a lot of GPIOs, you can just uh, send it to like an I squared C, you know, IO expander. And then you suddenly you have all these pins. Uh, it, it's a really cool thing. And what's nice about that is you don't have your... You don't have to flash new firmware to stuff. It's all in like a Python script or like a bash script or a, a tickle script or something like that to run your test. So it's all software defined. You don't have to flash a microcontroller to update your test, which has been really frustrating to be honest. Um, so that's what we're switching over to. And then just connecting to the DUT with JTAG and flipping bits uh, you know, uh, memory, in, in memory to like make pins go high low. And then that's how we check some of that stuff. So we're switching over. I'm in the middle of working on this thing right now. Um, but fully software-defined tests, no firmware. Oh, man, it's going to be a dream. So we're working on doing that right now, but that's currently how our, our automated test works. 
Well, that's fantastic. It, 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 it actually sounds kind of, um, um, I guess that's kind of a typical of a, you, of kind of uh, improving your flow as you go, as you just, yeah. you, know, you want to get it up and working quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of that, like you said, it's sometimes a little bit convoluted, a little bit kind of like less than <laughs> ideal. And you realize, wait a minute, I don't need to do this or this or this. I could just do that instead. And then <laughs> right. it evolves and it kind of shrinks and gets simplified, yeah. probably to the point where you, it would be way easier to explain it to someone who is unfamiliar with it. Whereas in the beginning, you go like, hey, I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of things <laughs> it's not aren't going to really make much sense but they make sense to me but then yeah. after a while you're like oh then you're gonna go oh so really all you did was one two and three yeah right. that's it you're right mm-hmm. so, yeah exactly yeah <laughs> when you yeah. explain to a five-year-old you're, you're, you're golden <laughs> exactly yeah that, it's a great point you fully understand something when you can explain it to anybody um, yeah and 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 it also has gotten fairly simple when when you got it to that point but i i, I so desperately want that and i think a lot of in order to know what you need to build to make it simpler, you have to make the convoluted one first. Because now now that we've built this, I have a really good understanding of what is it that we actually need to test on these boards? What's important for us to test? And what isn't? And now that I know that, I'm, I feel like I have a good enough understanding to make a testing platform for the company, for like any board we make. And in all honesty, the boards that we make are not doing anything crazy. There's the highest signal you know, the highest frequency, anything happening at any of our boards is like the crystal on the microcontroller. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. It's just nothing is fast. Nothing's high speed. We have USB 2.0 for serial communication and everything else is like, yeah. you know, 9600 baud UART at the fastest and it, nothing's crazy. So we're not, we don't need a scope involved. You know, we don't need function generators. We don't need really any of that stuff. There's nothing analog happening. It's simple stuff. So I, I can almost reduce the scope of what the test rig was originally scoped out to do a little bit and make a much simpler setup for every board we make and just standardize it. So if I just if we want to roll out a new board, there's so many times we wanted to make a change to a board and it's like, oh, but that's going to break compatibility with the test jig. Oh, I that kills me. I, what I'd love to do is with this new test setup, have a script because we do everything open source and in GitHub with open source software. So KiCad mm-hmm. is our EDA, FreeCAD is our um uh, 3D modeling software. So we have a lot of GitHub continuous integration scripts that automatically panelize, export, you know, render Gerbers, export SDLs for 3D models automatically. So a release is really easy. We just have the computer do it. But I'd love it if we make a new revision of the board and there's like certain tags in KiCad for certain components of like, hey, this is a pad to test. And then it automatically generates a KiCad PCB that I can then order for that revision of the board that drops into our test jig for like putting the pogo pins in the right place kind of thing. So even if we make a new revision, I literally don't even have to think about what I need to do to make this supported. It just automatically exports it and reducing that friction of like changing the test jig between revisions. That's a goal I have for, you know, some point in the next few months, I'd love to do that. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that pans out, but it, that's a nice part about having it all be open. You can just programmatically generate all this stuff and you don't have to do it manually. It's really cool. That sounds amazing. Cause, uh, anytime I've ever had to spin something, I go through the exact same pain point you're talking about. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like, Oh my God, what's involved in how much am I going to miss? And then if you, but I've never done what you're talking about where you, uh, you create all the generate, you generate like scripts and things that. You just basically push a button and it does everything. Uh, that's that yeah. sounds phenomenal. I, I, yeah, wow. <laughs> it, it's really great. I mean, we even have this for um, 
we have a lot of cable harnesses in the machine to connect motors and all kinds of stuff together. And there's this great project called uh, WireViz, which is based on GraphViz. It, it's effectively you define uh, relations between objects uh, in a YAML file, and then you run mm -hmm. it through this script, and it will generate a picture of how all these things are connected. So GraphViz is really good for like flowcharts and stuff, but WireViz does it for cable harnesses. So we have in our repo source, we have a bunch of YAML files that define the cable harnesses, the length, the kind of connector, the color of the wire, you name it. And then we run a CI script and it spits out the file that we literally just send to a vendor and then they make it for us. So there's no such thing as export. Like it's all just automatic. All our STLs, our bill of materials even, uh, as long as we update the CSV file in our repository, you hit generate bomb and it actually makes a full web page that you can download with all the rendered images of all the STLs in the whole 3D model, all the rendered images of all the PCBs, links to go buy all the stuff. It just spits it all out automatically. So doing a release is literally pressing a button and waiting 20 minutes for the CI to run. It's so great. So wow. we just want to extend that now to generating the test software as well. Uh, because that's one of the biggest hesitations to doing an uprev, and I want to reduce that friction. It should just be so much easier, you know. Wow! Wow! That sounds that sounds amazing. I... It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun setting those things up. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to talk to you a little off, off to the side about some of that stuff later on. That that sure. just sounds that sounds phenomenal. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun getting it set up. I got chills right now, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Wow. Yeah, it's it, it just saves us so much time, you know, and so much of it comes from, you know, that line about like the best programmers are lazy programmers because they don't want to do the same repetitive stuff over and over mm -hmm. again. Like mm -hmm. we don't want to have to spend when uh, Lucian, my, my colleague, uh, when we do a release, we don't want to spend a lot of time prepping it. We want it. Humans are uniquely good at creative endeavors and, you know, clerical data entry is not one of those things. That's a waste of human potential. And if we can just have a computer do all these things that have clear sets of rules, oh man, we should we should do it. <laughs> we should yeah. absolutely do that. So yeah, that, it's been it's been really nice. That's kind of exactly what goes along the lines when it comes to um, automating testing. Is um, uh, I find is that you you kind of take out deficiencies of people of being uh, uh, we get tired, we get yeah. uh, we transpose things. We make we skip steps, and anytime we have to do anything kind of manually, especially over the course of even hours, uh, we yes. get exhausted. We're just we're so error prone. And then when you can kind of automate it, where you don't have to worry about this stuff, you hit a button and your uh, a multimeter will make a measurement. Uh, you'll turn on a power yep. supply to, to the right voltage, not like almost the right voltage, but you get it right. And it's and yeah. and the, one of the biggest things I think about that is about the automation part of it is that. Well, if you're doing it manually, you're kind of limited to the capabilities of the not the capabilities of people, but the um the deficiencies of a, of us people that we get tired of all these things. And instead of having say ten tests to do something, you can test a thousand nodes if you wanted to because the yeah. computer doesn't care and it only takes yeah. milliseconds. So right, a yeah, a little bit yeah. faster. So yeah, it's it's really nice. And uh, sometimes I'll I'll get tapped by Lucian's our head of manufacturing manufacturing and he's like hey we need to we give me a hand i need you for a day for production and you know making our cable chains uh for sending all the tubing and wiring up to the heads and i had to make like you know they take time to make they're they're time consuming so i was jamming through a bunch of them and i realized halfway through i just stopped adding one of the cables and like i think i'm a pretty attentive guy i pay attention i yeah. designed everything that goes into that cable chain 
and halfway through, I still just like, I just missed it. Humans are just so, we are just error prone. You know, I was thinking about something else. It happens. That's part of it. But the more we can, we, uh, so we sell feeders for the pick and place, um, which uh, takes the electronic components that come in tape, serves it up. Uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are still familiar with this, but you know, just to just be safe. Um, and so they they kind of serve up electronic components to the nozzle tip to be picked. And our key metric for success for the feeder is the Y variance is what we call it. So when the wheel spins to move the tape forward, does it put the part uh, within some tolerance plus or minus in in the Y position just based on how we look at the thing, its orientation in the machine? Uh, is it tight enough that it still allows the nozzle tip to pick a 402 parts because that's our spec? Uh, so what I did is I wrote a test. We have this whole internal test software called Gundam. Uh, uh, it's a it's a Python uh, uh, app effectively that I I wrote that goes through and automatically tests a whole bunch of the, all the functional tests of like does the do the motors move does it home correctly uh, when we actually assemble everything together. So I wrote this kind of app that does these tests for us. And when we do the Gundam test for uh, feeders, we actually have it feed one full wheel rotation with just some sample tape and we have a camera above it and it looks at the voids in the tape and it uses machine vision to find exactly where they are. And if the variance is too great, we don't pass the feeder. So I, I was gone for a week. Uh, I was going to visit some friends for a week and uh, while feeder production was happening. And it was kind of like there was a ghost of Steven still at the office <laughs> kind of passing judgment on these feeders because the code I wrote is still running and even better than the ghost of Steven. It's like a robotic attentive ghost of Steven <laughs> to oh really God. stretch this analogy here. But, you know, I knew that every feeder that passed truly passed because it will not pass the feeder unless the variance is less than our tolerance. So th- that's another nice part of it too, is like it, it almost doubles uh, a brain. You you not only do you have something that could be more attentive and less error prone than a person, depending on on the automation and depending on the person, uh, but it can also mean you're doubling your efficiency because you're offloading it completely away from a person. That person can do other stuff. So yeah, that was a really nice, uh, that was a nice realization of like, yeah, I'm kind of still there in a weird way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So, so when you, uh, when you design these, uh, like the printed circuit boards that you put on the pogo pin testers, mm-hmm. um, do you guys, what kind of, uh, best practices do you, uh, have for doing that? So we generally, we think a lot about, I, I think pretty much on every board, we have an SWD because we, we use all ARM uh, STM32s for everything. So we have uh, SWD ports on pretty much the front and back of all boards that have a microcontroller uh, mm-hmm. for different reasons. Uh, we, the, the pogo pins always go in in one direction, but typically you want it on the other side for like a debugging setup. Um, so we have test points broken out for all programming and debug. And then pretty much every end effector that we need to check whether or not it's connected properly. Um, mm. So good example is uh, for feeders, we have breakouts for the outputs of all the motors. But we don't want to do, put a lot of wear and tear on a motor connector uh, for like the, the motors that plug into the feeder PCB. So instead, we just have broken out pads. So we can just have the poga pins connect to those pads. And those poga pins go to a dedicated motor on the test jig. And then that's what spins. And then that, uh, that that's the way that we we have that to prevent that from happening. And even stuff like we have an LED, an RGB LED on the feeder. Uh, we need to check to make sure all three of the, the dyes inside the LED are connected properly. So like having a light color uh, sensor 
uh, attached to the jig. So it goes, okay, we should be turning on red. Does red come through completely? So we're, we're thinking about like, what's every way in which something could go wrong? What, what qualifies a pass? And then do we have an ability to automatically test every aspect of that? Um, and we pretty much drop in a lot of test points. They're free. There's really no reason to not add more test points if you have the board space. So we kind of just sprinkle them in for anything we think might be relevant. And there's a lot that we don't use because they're just not necessary. We, we put them in errantly, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, but we just kind of put in as many as, as we think could be reasonable to have um, to be safe. And, and, and it's been great. <laughs> it's really nice. I, I would always rather, if we're going to go into production with a board, I would always rather have an extra test point that we don't need than the other way around. That is devastating. To uprev a board, to add a single pad, to test one thing, that's the worst. <laughs> oh, so sure. we try and avoid that like the plague. Uh, so we're just really thorough before we, we make the board. We add as many as we can conceive of. Um, and, and that's most of what we need to do uh, for the PCB design, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you have to deal with um, like uh, physical actuators, like switches and buttons and things that you can't really automate? Yes. So when we do our functional testing, so after the 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 unit testing, as I described earlier, where it's kind of like, is everything connected properly? That can be fully automated. When we get to functional testing, it's a little harder. So we have this jig. Uh, I said Gundam is the name of the software we use to control everything. So we name all the jigs that work with Gundam after Gundams. Gundam being like a big mech suit. Um, mm -hmm. So like Jaeger from Pacific Rim, the Jaegers are like the big robots. So we named this jig the Jaeger jig. <laughs> we, mm. We'll have fun like naming st stuff goofy. But uh, the Jaeger jig is, it's effectively a lumen, the, the pick and place, but it's broken down into only the actuators in like a tiny little footprint. So we kind of have like this acrylic tray that has uh, six motors in it, six limit switches, two vacuum sensors, two pumps, two valves, just all condensed and like kind of bolted to a panel. And what we do is when we do functional testing for the motherboard, we bolt the motherboard into it, we connect everything in, and then uh, the Gundam test, the software, will go and it will like kind of puppeteer the motherboard and say, hey, I'm gonna turn on the pump now. Did you see the pump come on? And ask the user that's, that's operating the thing, yes or no. Because there's not so much that we can do. Some of these things we can automate, like communication between peripherals. Yeah, we can check that um, in the functional test. But everything else is, you kind of need to know, is the motor spinning? I'm sure that we could hook it up to encoders and all that stuff. But it, it's not really, it hasn't proven itself that time consuming that having a person check it isn't just totally sufficient. So um, yeah, we kind of have like this like dumbed down little tiny lumen on a panel uh, and then people plug it in. It, you know, we'll say, please press the L limit switch. Press it, hit enter, and it checks to make sure that it was actually closed. So we're we're going through all that functional testing on every end effector. Um, but you know, there the, no no special considerations need to be made for that. We literally plug in all the cables as if the user is actually doing it. We want to get as close to end end usage as possible and not have mm -hmm. surrogates of like poga pins for this test because what if the connector isn't soldered on correctly we really want to test at the api that the customer is interfacing with um, yeah so that yeah that makes sense because i've always um that was always kind of a, a sticking point between um like if you have poga pins at the connector and you're measuring did you get the signal like you said yeah. you could be missing the connector and yeah. and that's that would be bad <laughs> <laughs> true there's kind of no way around that yeah, I the only way I can think of, and even this isn't still perfect, is there are pogo pins that have a, a cup shape instead of a point. And mm -hmm. you could have a pogo pin uh, if you have through hole connectors, of course, which we're trying to move away from because through hole is 
not automated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you can have those cups go on the bottom of the through hole. And that is still the same pin that the connector is interfacing with. It's not actually the connector, but it's the, the same contact that the connector would interface with. So that's yes. pretty darn close, but it's still not exactly it. So, you know, we think about that too. Yeah. One thing I've been toying with, around with um, is the idea of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, like say you have a, a connector on the side of the board is to yeah. basically have an actuator engage and press a, basically make a connection with another connector. And that would actually be testing on the, 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 uh, the user endpoint instead of just electrically the same point. Um, but th that could have its own issues with, you know, trying to get things lined up and things like that. But that would certainly take out the, um, that would speed up testing. I think if it could be done reliably, um, right. and still hit the endpoint that you really, the connector that you really care about instead of the sure. public pin. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and also in situations where we need to put the connector in a lot, all the connectors we use has some sort of detent to like retain the connector. So on every single one that we use in these test jigs, well, just with an exacto knife, we'll just cut off the little detent. So it's really easy to stick it in, uh, and it doesn't wear nearly as much because we we had a lot of problems with jigs really gaslighting us of like, why are all the you know X limit switches on these boards that we're making not working? Okay, well it's the test jig is busted. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's because the connector wore down. So we've been learning things about like how do we actually make it a lot more reliable. If we see the same error on two boards in a row, mm -hmm. we should really check, hmm, maybe it's the jig. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the jig is worn down. So trying to find the things that we can do to also have a, you know, better longevity of the jig. And when we know that it is a problem, there are some parts of the jigs we, we replace preemptively because we know after, you know, 500 cycles, it's just going to be broken. You know, like the, the, these connectors are not rated for certain high you know, connector repeatability after a certain amount of time. So, you know, depends. <laughs> Can you tell me some um, uh, some of the benefits you get from testing uh, boards versus not testing them? Yes, I th there's there's so much. So, at first, it's just we the 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 mission of Opulo is to help people manufacture their products. That is the reason that we exist. And if we ship something to someone that doesn't work, it is antithetical. to for the reason that we exist. If we ship them something that is a pain in their butt, that's not helping them. <laughs> now they right. just have to email us and we have to send them a replacement. Like, so first off, it's just not what we want to do. We want to ship stuff that works because that's why we're here. The second reason is uh, it's expensive because we have to send replacement parts. And you know, if, if we ship stuff that isn't working or isn't thoroughly tested, um, it's bad for brand. I mean, all the normal business stuff mm -hmm. uh, also ties into it. But also, depending on the scale of what we test, it is also a lot faster to test. So when we <laughs> when we first launched uh, like a year and a half ago, uh, we we were selling kits, and it was just me and Lucian, and we were just putting and and my girlfriend Jade and the three of us were putting together these kits, just crazy long hours. And I made the first eighty motherboards uh, myself, and we didn't have a test jig, so I just sat there with a multimeter and I probed every pin. <laughs> On like a TQFP 100, <laughs> connecting oh out to everything it needed to be on 80 boards because we just didn't have the infrastructure for it. And I knew if we got, if we had problems, we're going to have to make even more and I'm going to have to test them even more like this. I'm like, let's just try and do it as, as well as we humanly possible uh, and then automating it from there. So it's just for, even from a time consideration, 
it's such an obvious win. And I, I mentioned this earlier, if we don't do the unit testing on some boards, we get to functional testing when it's all, you know, we, we, it's all buttoned up. It's all ready to go into a box. We're just doing the final gut check. Oh, well, there's a bunch of soldering errors. Now we have to unbolt it and bring oh, yeah. it back to the rework. And like, it's such a pain. Like uh, we have a rule of the, we name all our rooms in the office after open source projects. So our SMT line is Tor based on like the, the browser. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a rule that boards only leave Tor when they're perfect. And if it, if it is, if a PCB has left Tor, it's perfect. There's no problem with it. And because we, we don't even want to play ball with that. We just want to assume they're going to be right. So it's just more efficient. It, it shouldn't go into a subassembly if we don't already know it's perfect. Cause it just takes so much time to disassemble. It's so, it's such a, a, a scourge on, on efficiency. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to do it. It, it really is just, it's a no brainer to, to be spending time on this kind of infrastructure. Wow. That also uh, leads into the idea of, um, of making things, uh, I guess, designed for manufacture where if you do have to take something apart, you don't need to unsolder 30 wires. You could basically pop off a <laughs> connector or, or, or have something where you just, it just, you know, just by pressing it into place, it, it seats into something where, yeah. Cause the idea of disassembling something because something's wrong on the way on the inside yeah. Oh my goodness. It just, <laughs> it makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made us angry too. There were a couple of weeks. It was when we started switching. So in our early kits, we only did SMT and we shipped a bag of connectors and people did all the through hole soldering themselves. Uh, this is when we were really just first starting out. And then we started switching to doing fully soldering all the through hole. And we didn't test the through hole soldering. We just said, Oh, if it works on SMT, of course, the through-hole soldering will be fine. We'll just do all the through-hole soldering, and then we'll put it on the, the machine. And no, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> it's not that clean cut. You you really have, and we, we had two weeks where it was like nothing is passing. We have to unmount all these motherboards from the staging place where we mount it to. Uh, it's actually also a very big PCB. And it, it was just a huge pain. And we're like, okay, we got to add this step. And then we made the Jaeger jig, the kind of lumen shrunk down onto a panel. Uh, mm -hmm. And then that was really for checking do the connectors also work? Like when we put this on a machine, is it going to do the thing correctly? So yeah, all that design for manufacturer stuff, like it needs to be, it also, if there is a problem, we need to easily be able to, to remove stuff, um, you know, unplug things, easily rework parts. You know, that's a huge part, not, not having connectors really close to, uh, things that could be problematic for rework, like STM32 pins, you know, really find the, uh, gauge, find pitch components because you're going to with hot air, you're going to melt the heck out of the connector. So that was when we learned the hard way too. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plastic does not like soldering irons. Yes. <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> or, or heat guns. <laughs> or heat guns. Yeah. It really doesn't. It wants one reflow process and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So um, when you, um, when you start designing parts uh, like what, what um, I guess I'm thinking PCBs, but I guess it could be anything. Are there typical thoughts that go into designing a board that's simple versus a board that is complex? Do you mean like like in terms of testing, like what do I need to do differently? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, not too much difference. Well, that's not true. So for the motherboard, uh, for the machine, there's a lot going on. None of it's super complicated. There's just a lot of very simple things happening on the board that we mm -hmm. need to check all of them. For the feeder board, uh, it still has an STM32 on it, but there's not too much going on. So we don't have a Poco pin test for that. Uh, we just have a functional test and they always pass. And if they uh -huh. don't pass, 
it's very obvious what's wrong. So, but I designed those two boards the same way, even though one was much more complicated. There's a ton of test points on that board. We just don't use them. But then we have a board that's crazy simple. It's the ring light uh, that illuminates the parts for the two cameras on the machine. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively eight uh, individually addressable LEDs. So there's no test points on that at all. There's a through hole connector. And I made a jig in probably an hour that has an Arduino Nano on it. And it has three pogo pins. And you just take the ring light and you put it into this little 3D printed jig that has the pogo pins interface with it. There isn't even a button to run the test. I just have the Arduino run the test on boot and you just hit the reset button <laughs> oh, to run okay. the test. So I didn't even have to solder a button to this thing. I made it oh, in okay. an hour. And this jig has probably made, I don't know, thousands of ring lights over the past, like, past couple of years. And it just tests them really thoroughly. So for something truly simple, my, my methodology is the same of like, what's the API with this board? What What's the inputs that I need to be able to puppeteer it to check all these things? And what's the outputs? What's the, the test um, uh, criteria, success criteria for the board? And sometimes that means I need an SWD header. I need to talk to it, you know, talk to the chip and flash firmware. And other times it's like, I can just slap it into a jig and press a button and make sure all the lights go white. You know, <laughs> that mm, can also be I it. see. Um, so I, it's still the same set of considerations. It's just, Sometimes those considerations are a lot less depending on what the board actually has to do. Uh, how about um, what are some uh, examples of the design for tests that you found to be game changers? Uh, for game changers, it th the stuff that truly makes it no question a benefit to add is stuff that removes. We were just talking about me messing up all those cable chains, operator error, something that makes it unequivocally, if it passes this, it has to work like a test should be it, it should it should be so difficult all of these perfect stars must align of like everything is perfect for it to pass a test and if we can make it so that there is no chance that someone can do can incorrectly say no this passed and it really didn't mm -hmm. that is what's important so like the led color for example like instead of saying hey press enter if you see the color of the led is white of the rgb led and all three dyes are on there's actually a colorimeter. I'm not sure what the name of the actual sensor is, but actually having a thing on there that checks to see is the wavelength of light I am receiving within the bounds that is acceptable. Like that kind of thing for testing mm -hmm. is truly what is a game changer in my mind. Um, mm. it, I'd say that is the big one. And then the other one is bifurcating out into functional and unit testing has been really helpful for us because when we when we dive into a new board like over the past year before we started developing this this dichotomy we really weren't sure like, like well what do we test what what is important what is likely to fail and kind of coming up with that mental model has made it really helpful for us to see to to, to always have we always have to have a functional test because before it goes out the door we have to know it does the thing we say it does on the box right like mm -hmm. that is unequivocal that has to happen there's no question about that but if the unit testing is necessary, that understanding, whether or not we actually need to do the unit testing, huge win for us because we don't have any unit testing for the feeder board. The functional testing is more than enough for us to, to know. Um, so learning what things are actually have to be tested and challenging that assumption is, is, has also been a game changer. Um, that's been really huge for us. How about some things that seem valuable at first, but turn out to not be so valuable? So we have on the motherboard uh, pogo pin jig, the fully automated one that checks all the pin connections, mm -hmm. we have it print out a receipt. And that receipt is like a literal piece of receipt paper that prints out the results of every test. 
So when I first did this, I had a plan to have, based on what pin was wrong, it would like link to debugging steps for fixing that, which sounds great. It's like, oh, well, why wouldn't you want it? Like an operator running the jig could see, oh, you know, error code B52, <laughs> B52s, B52, <laughs> um, that means I need to touch up pin 46 on this, this IC, whatever. And that seemed great. And in reality, no one uses it because the, the process that we have results in systemic error that quickly becomes learned by the operators. So like, we know that, oh, if this, if I see, you know, the B32 error, I'm not going to go look up the debug guide. I just know that it means this MOSFET needs to be, this pin on this MOSFET needs to be soldered. So those debugging steps ended up quickly going out of date and uh, passed by because of like colloquial, you know, um, just passed around knowledge mm -hmm. of the of the people who actually run the line. It was really helpful to have the results say, hey, it's this pin is messed up. But the actual debugging steps, it was a huge waste of time. It was a huge oh, waste of time. So I, I think it's important to have some kind of result that says, here's generally what's wrong. But having the individual instruction, so much of that comes from just understanding the system, knowing how to debug it. It's mm -hmm. a complex thing. It's a microcontroller. There's a little computer on that. So right. understanding exactly in what way it fails is so much more helpful than spending all the time to write up all of those debug instructions. Uh, um, so pointing them in the right direction, but not prescribing the solution. I think that that was a, I thought that was going to be a game changer and it was not a good use of time. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. Uh, that's yeah. something I've, I've tried to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of rethink it is like, if you're running a, uh, running a test, you know, step one, step two, step three, and all of a sudden step three fails. Um, I would proactively kind of, um, make some additional measurements which are kind of like uh, you know what's the voltage of this power supply what's this some kind of stuff that you would want to know about and to automate that and to add that as additional kind of um you know this may this may be helpful to you i guess it doesn't tell you exactly what to do but it says well i'm going to check the, the the vcc anyway because that's an obvious thing so i just have the test uh, make that measurement for me and then just give that to the operator right and, and i think I think depending on the scale, that would be really helpful. Like mm -hmm. we right now, there's two to three people that run our line here. And all three of us are constantly in contact. We're in the office every day. We all mm -hmm. know the common failure modes of, of building the boards. So if we see a certain error type, we're like, oh, it must be that pin. And we check and sure enough, it's that pin. We fix it and the board passes. So mm -hmm. we're not maybe necessarily at the scale that requires that kind of thing. I totally see a world in which that is a really for an incredibly stable, long-term product that has very understood failure modes. I think it's a great investment to spend the time doing that. But Opulo is nine people now. We're not a huge operation yet. So mm -hmm. it just, it, has, it hasn't ended up being a good investment of time where we are now. But eventually, I oh, I think it would be a fantastic solve. It's just so much is still verbal now. You know, it, we can stay on top of it verbally. When it starts to get messy, yeah, then it's time to start writing it down, I think. Mm, I see. I see. Um, what kind of challenges have you come across, um, especially I could imagine being kind of, you said you've been a year and a half. I can only imagine how many uh, challenges have come along the way. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of them. And, uh, you know, and also part of it is we use our own pick and place machine. So when we, and so there's a lot of reasons that we do that because, it's dog fooding, which is a, a term I think I'm 
Eins, uh, Eins dog food uh, popularizes it. I'm trying to remember. I, I could be very wrong about this, but the CEO supposedly like ate the Eins dog food in a board meeting. It's like, if we don't eat our own product, what are we even doing? And so the term came to mean you use your own product at as part of your operation. So we dog food, we, all our boards are made on our machine. And we do this because we're not, we're, we are at a scale still where it makes sense to do it. If we ever get to the, the scale where it doesn't make sense to, we probably won't nearly as much anymore. Uh, we, we tout doing this for mid-scale manufacturing. So using a, a lumen for more than a hundred units a year, but like less than 10,000 a year. Uh, that's kind of the window that we've seen people use it. Although some people have used the Lumen to make like 30,000 boards in a year, like crazy, crazy. But that's generally the scope. Um, so we use our machine that way. But also we are, we understand the machine really well. We know what's great about it. We know what needs work on it. So it really helps us inform product development decisions by using it. So figuring out, we're, we're kind of like figuring out how to run a line with the Lumen as we go. Uh, and that's, that's part of it. That's like, what's the meta? What's the best way to go about doing this? That's been part of uh, the challenge. Um, and, and part of that too, is the reason of the company. We want to learn that stuff and share, Hey, this is the best way to do reflow. Here's the best solder paste we found for using this and help other people from the stuff that we learned in that way. Um, so there's been part of that, of like tuning the machine and process that, that has been, uh, not trailblazed for us yet, <laughs> you know? Um, but as for, for testing, I think, I think the biggest challenge is understanding when it makes sense to test something. That's the biggest point, uh, not testing something that we really should. And then it goes out and then, oh yeah, this is a great example. Uh, we didn't thoroughly test the vacuum sensors on our uh, Rev3 motherboard, so early, early machines that we shipped out, we didn't thoroughly test that like they had a, a good range of sensor that was enough to, we, we have the vacuum sensor to detect whether or not there's a part on the nozzle tip. So if there's a mispick, we can immediately go and try and rectify the issue by repicking. Um, it's a really cool feature, but we didn't, we weren't checking that the ranges that that sensor was outputting was within a reasonable range. And it wasn't for a lot of boards that we sent out. And so people had a problem with it and we had to make this interposer board and it was this whole thing. And now our tests, we check this vacuum sensor. We, we check, uh, we have like a nozzle tip on, no nozzle tip, a covered nozzle tip. We have like all these steps to make sure that all the ranges are acceptable and like readable and useful before we ship out the board. So not, not checking the whole API of the thing we're shipping, um, the whole like, attack vector, the whole surface of what, what is it that it's supposed to do? You can have no assumptions. You cannot assume it looks fine. This has never failed before. Nope. You can't, you cannot for a second, make that assumption. Everything needs to be tested. Absolutely every mm -hmm. part of it. So that was a really tough learning that we had. Um, that really kicked our butt in the gear of like, yeah, we need to be a lot more thorough about this. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, that was a great learning uh, for us. Um, yeah, that, that was a big one. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Oh, how about some early wins? You have any early wins for testing? For uh, I guess for testing, and then maybe for your business, just as a business. Um. Well, so for for testing, th those first eighty I did by hand. That was rough, but all of those worked way better than I than I had any right to assume that they would. <laughs> like I don't think we had any S and T assembly error on any of those first 80 that we sent out. So that was mm -hmm. great. That was a really good use of time, even though it was very time consuming. Um, and then once we got the test jig spun up, 
it's it's seen hundreds if not thousands of boards so that has also been an early win it was a really good choice to start working in that on that as early uh, as we did uh-huh. um so you know thinking about design uh bunny huang a huge huge hero of mine i love his work he has a great blog post on his website about how you, when you make a product there's actually two products the first product is your product the second product is the thing that tests your product. <laughs> it's ah, arguably yeah. the same, if not more work. So from the beginning, we started working on this test jig. Um, I didn't quite have it done in time to do those first 80, but uh, it was for shortly after that, we got it spun up. So that was a huge win. Um, another huge win was, I mean, the whole company was based on my YouTube channel that I started in like 2019. And all of the R&D efforts that went into designing the Lumen, um, and getting community feedback and building a community about it, building a Discord server. Um, that was all, like all of those folks that have been following along that whole time were also our early adopter market. They were our early customers as well. Uh, and also the notoriety of it helped us raise a little bit of money through a safe note. So there was like, starting it on YouTube and having the the visual and the community about it, when we started selling the kits, we sold out in like an hour. And it was because we made a YouTube video about it. And all those people who watch were stoked to get one, stoked to be involved. So huge early win for us was like approaching it through the context of media and having a YouTube channel, having a community, being community focused, uh, listening to feedback from the community. That was a huge part of why we are in business today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think I remember I've I've, kind of... I've probably been following your YouTube channel for probably it seemed like a year, but it, um, cool. and and it's it's kind of been kind of an adventure, uh, just kind of watching the progress and it's like watching a real time show unfold before you and just kind of watch it's 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 really good. I really like Thanks. your YouTube channel. Yeah, that's like, your YouTube channel. That's where I very first uh, heard about you. And I go, oh my god, this is so interesting. I I, I, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And then yeah, you got it, so busy, they didn't get a chance to do so many YouTube channels, and I cried a little bit. And then, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I, actually, now that you mentioned that, so I, um, my role at Opulo has freed up a lot now that feeders are out. Um, mm-hmm. And my, what I uniquely am able to bring to the table can shift away from R&D a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. still working on new stuff, but other people can take on more of that as we're growing. So I'm much more focused on content. I just posted a, a video on Saturday and I'm going to try and get back to my three week schedule because I miss it. It's mm-hmm. so much fun making the content about it. It's great for people learning about the Lumen and understanding it. Um, and also I, uh, we have this cool idea. I don't know if I've talked about this yet, um, but we're, we're going to start doing this thing where in one of the videos, I'll design like a random prototype, just like a cool product thing, a standalone gizmo, and then make a hundred of them on the Lumen and show, hey, look, I can design this in a weekend and have a hundred of them built like a week later. Like, look how fast it is to take a product all the way through to production and have a hundred of them in hand and just do that whole arc for a video and show off wow, this is actually like really useful and you can use the Lumen to do this. So not only is it like I get to design a fun prototype every three weeks and get back to the OG YouTube roots, but I'm also showing, hey, look, the Lumen does this. Um, and maybe we'll sell those 100 or something like that. We're still trying to figure out the details, but um, I, I, I miss it and I want to get back to it. Uh, it's uh, where I, this whole thing came from. Uh, and that's where we get so much of our valuable feedback of people giving us suggestions on how to do things. 
So I, I, I miss that feedback and I really want to engage that a little more. So we'll, we'll be getting back into it soon. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, how about, um, uh, you have any current projects that you uh, are working on? Uh, l- related to Opula? Yeah. Um, let's see. So yeah, we have, now that we have feeders out, um, we have only eight millimeter without 12, 16 and 24 millimeter with tape uh, feeders are coming out soon. We're beta testing them internally on our line. 12 is like pretty sorted and we're very close to just being able to start shipping those. 16, 24, the tape, uh, or excuse me, the film that holds the parts into the tape is typically more uh, adhesive based as opposed to like a heat stake based uh, film uh, adherence method. Okay. And that causes a lot more problems with peeling. So we still have some revisions to do for 16 and 24, but 12 is really well sorted. So I'm ushering that through. Um, and also when you have uh, the width of our feeders is about 15 millimeters, just shy of 15 mm-hmm. uh, millimeters, but really wide tape spools are wider than that. So you can't necessarily mount them on the back of the feeder. They have to be mounted underneath the machine. So we're working on like a spool mounting system uh, for under for underneath the table effectively mm-hmm. to hold all your reels. So that's something that we're working on. Um, uh, a lot of people also ask, hey, what can, can the Lumen build my board? Like, here's my board, here's my specs. That's so many of the emails that we get. Uh, so what I'm doing is I'm building an online configurator tool that mm-hmm. you can go and say, hey, I have this many unique eight millimeter parts, this many 12, and it actually will 3D render a Lumen in browser with all <laughs> the appropriate feeders and strip feeders needed yeah, and yeah. show you exactly what you need in order to, and whether or not it can do it. Um, so it's going to answer that question for a lot of customers. It's been so fun to work on and like, how do I render the Lumen in browser and generatively create a configuration and really, really fun. So that's something else I've been working on. Um, and in podcast stuff in general, we're also uh, doing another revision of the motherboard to do all SMT because the through hold is just very time consuming. Um, so we're, we're changing a couple things about the machine too, to make it a little bit easier to manufacture. Wow, but wow. yeah, that, that's a lot of what my day looks like now. I actually, you just brought up something. It, it just occurred to me. Um, now the machine you do is the assembly, right? Do you have something that does the soldering as well? Or do you just do a heat, heat gun or how do you actually do the soldering? That's a great that's a great question. Uh, and this is something we've been spending a lot of time thinking about. We only make a pick and place. So mm-hmm. it only assembles the parts. Right now, it's it's dealer's choice for how do you get the stencil all set up and stencil your board? How do you reflow it? Mm-hmm. And there, there's some great open source projects for stencil setups. There's a great like $250 jig you can get from AliExpress that holds a framed stencil really well. We have like four of them. They're mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so that's a really good solution for stenciling. Uh, but for reflow, there's there's the classic T962A that you can get on Amazon that Hackaday has a great article about it of like, here are all the things that suck about this reflow oven that you need to modify. Like they put flammable masking tape inside like the heated area and it <laughs> smokes the first five times you use it until it burns off all the, it's terrible. So mm-hmm. we got one of those and we tried using it super inconsistent for reflow. So what we, the meta, like the, the most effective tactic available meta that we found is uh, we literally buy a Black & Decker toaster oven. I spend two days outfitting it with a bunch of silicone RTV sealant and uh, like reflective like insulation panels meant for like uh, exhaust on motorcycles. Mm-hmm. And we get um, Unexpected Maker, Sion, uh, he's based out of Australia. He makes a reflow, it's called the Reflow Master. It's a little controller that just like, takes in thermocouples, you connect it to a solid state relay, and it just bang, bang controls the heaters in a toaster oven. 
it's awesome. His new one has a web interface. You can tweak the settings for like from a web browser. It's such a cool piece of kit. So we do that, but it's still not an off-the-shelf solution. So we're trying to think about like, what's the best way to provide a solution for Reflow? Mm -hmm. uh, but that toast-driven method, it's great. Like, it works really darn well. It's perfect. Wow. It's incredibly consistent. It gets to temp fast enough, follows the profile. Um, but so we're, we're looking at like, what are other things that are frustrating in the SMT line, the mid-scale SMT line that we can help address? And that's definitely one of them. It seemed like that would be a very, a very, a very good one because it's, it's almost like having like the assembly, like I guess on a traditional assembly, you, you have the assembly stage, it goes down a rack and then all of a sudden it enters a, a reflow stage. And just to have that uh, maybe tack on the end of your process for <laughs> probably easier said than done i imagine yes and and what we found from a lot of user research is uh if you it's very unlikely that it is actually beneficial to have a conveyor belt system in a desktop ping and place line like mm. for the speeds that we're running like we can hit like a thousand cph um but at normal speeds it's more like seven or eight hundred cph like it's not a crazy fast pick in place it's the mm -hmm. zero to one thing like the difference between not having to do it and doing oh, it yeah. is huge mm -hmm. um but for those kinds of speeds that we're running on the machine it's not the conveyor removing a board from the machine is such a small percentage of the time spent doing it 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 really only makes sense to do a full conveyor belt system when you have like a floor mounted industrial setup because if the conveyor belt is there and the the uh, belt driven reflow oven is there what you also need for it to be fully automated is a pcb hopper you need an automatic stenciling setup and like those also need to exist for any of that conveyor belt methodology to be usable um, I, I I really wanted it early on. I even prototyped it, uh, and I made a conveyor belt system that clamped the board down. You could populate it, and it would kick it out the other side. Uh, it was a hard one coming around to that, but so many of the user interviews that we did, it just wasn't a priority for people. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, maybe one day down the line, if we make a bigger, uh, more industrial setup of the machine, we'll definitely design around that. Uh, mm. But for this one, it just didn't make. Unfortunately, I I really wanted to design it, but <laughs> it just it didn't really make sense. I see. I see. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, could you uh, tell us about your uh, your podcast you have? Uh, um, yeah. Open something. I can't remember yes. what it's called. Yeah, it's, it, it's the Open Hardware Manufacturing Podcast, or OM for short. Yeah. Uh, like the Omega, you know, is a little pun. We actually were originally going to call it OM Improvement, like <laughs> OM Improvement. That might have um, been good. It was. It's funny, but it felt a little like. I don't know, a little dorky, but I, I, that's what I think about it in my head because it's about improving open hardware manufacturing. The whole point is like, you know, the YouTube channel that I started is, you know, kind of talking about how do I design the fun R&D stuff that goes into making hardware products. But there's a lot of other details, like the episode we're going to record in just a few hours uh, is about sourcing. Like if you need to get, we have a vacuum pump in the machine that actually does the sucking to hold the part on the nozzle tip. How do we find that? How do we validate that? How do we find a vendor and negotiate with the vendor and get pricing and get samples? And how does all that work? Um, so, you know, we're going to be talking about some of like the more long form stuff that doesn't really fit well in a YouTube video, but it's great, you know, uh, rush hour traffic kind of content, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's what we're really focusing to do. The, the whole, like I said before, the point of Opula is to help people manufacture their products. And so far, we've only done that by shipping hardware. But uh, with the podcast, we're trying to also do that with like conveying information. We've learned a lot so far and we're also still greenhorns. We're still figuring it out. But 
if we can share some of what we learned so far that can help other people, oh, that's, that's on mission. That's exactly what we should be doing. So it's about a lot of that stuff. What does it mean to, um, to build hardware? What's hard about it? And it being open source too, talking about that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is yeah. awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm really <laughs> glad I had you on as a guest. This is, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, I was wondering if there's any other, any other topics you'd like to talk about. Um, um I, the, the thing that I am always pulled towards is uh, the fact that we're all open sourced and the benefits of it um, mm -hmm. and how the fact that if your source is open, it all the fears that people have about, oh, if my source is open, people are going to steal my stuff and clone it, which is like a very valid thing to feel, uh, mm -hmm. especially in like how society works and suing and patents and like how we're taught to treat IP. It's a very reasonable knee-jerk reaction. But coming from somebody that would only be here running this company if this was open source, it's it really can be so overwhelmingly beneficial. Like developing in conjunction with a community has made the designs that we put out so much better than anything I ever could have made by myself. They catch bugs, they find problems, and they help bring it to our attention and help fix them. And like, they're also your target market. The, the people who are trying to buy the thing from you are also telling you what they want from it. Um, I'm a huge, huge advocate for making your source open, doing development with the community, uh, being transparent about all that stuff. And, and there's a real difference between open source and open company. Like our HR stuff at the company is all private. That's, it's actually illegal to share some of that stuff. So, you know, drawing that line is tricky, but if you can draw it well, it is just such an overwhelming benefit to keep your source open um, in, in my experience. So um, that would be my only other thing to mention is like ur urging folks to think about, okay, what benefits am I actually getting from keeping it closed? You're, if your thing is valuable, it's going to get cloned either way. Apple uh, uh, AirPods, um, or is that what they're called? What are uh, the little, are they Air AirPods? Is that what yeah. they call them? Uh -huh. Yeah. I don't know why I just didn't get that one. But yes, AirPods are cloned to high heaven. And Apple has all their stuff locked down. Like if you have a valuable thing, it's going to get cloned. It's going to get cloned. It, there's nothing you can do about it. So might as well have a community come along with you and like engage with the people who want your thing. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's my little two cents on that. That's a, uh, uh, it's very important to us. It's very baked into how we operate here. This has been so interesting and I've learned a lot about you in designing for tests. Uh, I'm sure I can apply this to my own projects and others as well. There's just so much to learn when you come when you, have, when you have so many years of experience. This has been great. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, you can find Opulo online at opulo.io and take a look at all the pick and place and the Lumen. Uh, there's also uh, the pick and place in the feeders, I should say. We also have all the GitHub sources available from there. You can also find uh, my YouTube channel where I make videos about this kind of stuff. Uh, it's just my name, Stephen Hawes. If you look it up in, in YouTube, you'll find me there. And that's H-A-W-E-S, right? H-A-W-E-S, yep, you got it. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, well, thanks for joining me today. It's been it's been it has been such a fantastic uh, talk with you. I've learned so much. I've I'm sure you've uh, uh, dispelled some myths and find your <laughs> struggles and your your early wins and all those things like this. It's uh it's been great. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, joining me today. It was my pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Um, all right, friends, that's it for today. I'm Paul Phillips, and I hope you join me again next time for Engineer to Be Excellent. Goodbye.